our study in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. Let me uh, just mention to you, especially if maybe you're here for the first time, if you are, we welcome you. And uh, if you haven't been coming regularly to our our Wednesday night study, we've been in the book of Revelation now for a couple of years. Uh, Not in this chapter alone, okay? It it might seem that way, but uh, we have been going through the book of Revelation and I uh, personally keep expecting, you know, that someday before we finish it, maybe the Lord will come for his church and we'll see the rapture happen and all of that. But uh, I just want to mention that uh, coming in at this particular point uh, in time, it, it, it might be a little awkward and confusing. I don't want that to be for you. Uh, what we have been dealing with in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation have been the final judgments that are described to us by the revelation given to John of what is to be taking place in the last days before the return the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom, his, his, his thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. And um, what we have seen has been this gradual, if not uh, intensifying uh, expressions of these judgments from what we began with uh, back in chapter uh, 6, dealing with... Uh, the uh, seal judgments, the judgments of the seals that were broken in the scroll that was given uh, and opened by Jesus. And then came the trumpet judgments, with, which showed us a, a, a greater intensity of the same, very similar judgments. And eventually, of course, came the, the, the outpouring of the bowl judgments, the judgments as if pouring out from a bowl these uh, th- these judgments of fury and wrath from God upon an unbelieving world or those that remain on the, uh, on the earth. Part of the reason why these judgments are coming is for God to deal with, uh, with uh, the nation of Israel, which has to be in, in, in the land of, of Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, of Israel, which it is today. Uh, and, and once again, this this kind of uh, topples these other ideas that uh, Israel is, is, is not any longer valid uh, as a nation uh, and that all of the prophecies of Revelation and Matthew chapter 24, that all of that has already been fulfilled. And that's not true. It cannot be because of the nation of Israel. So we're looking at uh, the end times from the perspective of the nation of Israel, the love that God has for his people, the love God has for his land, and then, of course, the love that God has had for the church to remove the church out of the way when all of these particular judgments come. But in the last few weeks, as we've been looking at chapter 17, when we are finally introduced to this, to this woman who is called uh, mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And we, we've been working on identifying 
who this woman is, and we've given a few ideas from uh, certain standard interpretations and and uh, 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 applications of, of Bible uh, prophecy teaching and all. Then we have to consider the beast that she's riding, uh, which is at the very beginning of this particular chapter. So this is where we've been as, as, uh, as these last few things are unfolding, because what it's going to have... What it's going to lead us to is to see the destruction of not only the, the uh, mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and all of that, but the beast itself and all the nations that follow the beast. And what the, what the beast is, of course, is, uh, are the nations and the kingdoms that are led by Antichrist. So we're dealing with the Antichrist and... and uh, I mentioned that we were going to do a little bit of work on Antichrist tonight. We're going to do a little bit, but not very much. Next week is when we close out chapter 17. Yes, next week we close out chapter 17. We do so by looking at some of the, uh, some of the characteristics of Antichrist in light of what we have said in the last few weeks about the difference of looking at Scripture from what was being taught 40 years ago before Islam took the, the rise that it did in the world scene and all the focus as far as the ten nation confederacies uh, that the uh, ten horns of this beast were supposed to be representing and getting our, our ideas off of the West and Europe and putting them actually in the Middle East where they're supposed to be. So that's what, that's what we've been looking at over uh, these last few, few weeks. So I want to start again in verse 12, even though we've already been up, up to this. Uh, last week we read this, but we didn't really get into it. We're going to get into it a little bit more tonight. And read down through the end of the chapter and cover just a few of these verses, but at the same time lay another foundation of understanding of what's taking place. So as John is being given this revelation, it says, "...the ten horns which you saw," as an angel is speaking now to John, "...the ten horns which you saw are ten kings." who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And we'll go back to know which, which kings we're talking about as far as, not specifically, but as far as in the uh, symbolism itself. Uh, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. This is our victory verse here for tonight. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that, of course, toward the end. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And again, that city of, is, is called here Babylon the Great. Now, in, in studying this passage and 
and wanting to, to make sure that we are going in the right direction when it comes to uh, the symbolism and, and trying to identify certain things from this, this symbolism. I, I was looking at a map in, in one of my Bibles the other day and, and was looking at the spread of Christianity. Uh, they had it kind of marked out. And it, and it just, it kind of hit me between the eyes that as I was looking at the map of Christianity or, or the spread of Christianity over the first 600 years of, of uh, the uh, 600 A.D. after the birth of Christ, that when you compare that map to the map of the Roman Empire, it's, it's virtually the same map. What was the world to the disciples and the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When they went from Jerusalem in, in, into Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world, what was the world for them? It was everything that was called the Roman Empire. Most of, most of where they went, the apostles, if we were to take a, uh, a time to, to look at each individual apostle, there were histories written about them and, and, uh, and all, and, but they, they went in all sorts of directions. But if you just look at the apostle Paul and, and Peter in the book of Acts, and you see where they focus their attention, it was in the, Rome, the part of the Roman Empire that would have been considered the eastern part of the Roman Empire as a whole, not the western part of the Roman Empire. Paul had a desire to go in, into the western aspect of, of the Roman Empire. He, he had a desire to go in that direction. Eventually he would go as far as, as, as Rome. Some people actually believe that Paul eventually made it to Britain. But uh, we're not sure about that. In any event, that would have come probably at a time when, you know, there, there were not a lot uh, of history that was written about him. Uh, but it was considered that, that Paul did make it to, to, to Britain. Most of his ministry was in Asia Minor. Then I want you to remember something about the first, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, especially chapters 2 and 3. The seven churches that were uh, sent letters by Jesus, yeah, the seven churches themselves, all of the seven churches were in Asia Minor. In effect, all of the churches were in Babylon. Now, I want you to hold that thought until next week. <laughs> but all the churches were actually in what is called Turkey today. And next week is when we finally tied the whole shoe about Babylon. Mystery Babylon. And what has become the greatest enemy to the cross and to Christ and to the church. But the, but the, but the message was sent to Asia Minor. 
Ephesus, Sardis, Smyrna, Pergamos. Pergamos, when you read about Pergamos in chapter 2 of, 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 uh, of Revelation, it, it tells us that that is the seed of Satan. Now, I know I covered this a couple of weeks ago. So this is just review. So as I'm looking at the map now, uh, the sections... Let me see if I have my little pointer here somewhere. I know I do. I used to. I think, they, I, think I didn't pay the bill, so I don't have it here. Here it is. I got it. Okay. This particular area here, and here, which we will call the eastern part of the Roman Empire, actually did not include this part of northern Africa. This part of northern Africa was actually considered western Roman Empire. All right. This is eastern empire. Now, there's, there's one other map uh, that shows a little darker yellow uh, all throughout this particular area. You'll notice that it goes beyond the, the Roman Empire. All of this, again, going east, if you'll notice, and going in, in this southerly area here, and this little area right here, over here on the eastern part. All of that is what we're concerned about in our teaching uh, through the chapter 17 and 18. But this is the area of our concern. When we deal with what we would call the revived Roman Empire. Now, I told you all that if we think about it in Western terminology, in, in, you know, uh, that was the problem before where we were saying, well, a revived Roman Empire, there, that has to mean that we're going to see these nations, Britain and France and Germany, and in uh, Austria and Belgium and, and any other number of, 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 of nations in the West over here, that's become the Roman Empire. Why them over there, see? Why that area? Well, here's Rome. And, uh, and yet it doesn't really get mentioned very often in Scripture. What does get mentioned a lot? This area. And in particular, Babylon. Babylon's mentioned quite a bit. So that's, that's, that has to, uh, again, give us a, a little bit of an idea. And something that isn't often mentioned, but we're going to see a lot of next week, is the mention of Saudi Arabia. And that, again, plays a major role in, in the end time. One other map, again, this is that area here. Well, going back for just a moment... Uh, by the way, a lot of times people say, well, Germany, what about uh, Sweden and all those other nations? Do you notice that they're not even in the, in the Roman Empire? They weren't in the Roman Empire. So if it's a revived Roman Empire, why are we naming them as, as nations that are going to be uh, taken by Antichrist? So that's, that's why I want us to focus eastward. I kept saying that last time, and we need to do that. We need to focus eastward. So... There's Egypt here, and of course Libya right around here. South of Egypt is, is uh, Sudan, which was what was called Ethiopia. It's not Ethiopia, the one that we know. It is the Sudan. It is primarily, by the way, Muslim. Uh, and then, of course, here's uh, uh, Jerusalem there, and, and then Babylon this way. Okay? Anyway, that, I wanted to begin with that understanding. 
that we have to look eastward, not westward, when we're dealing with the nations that are going to be coming uh, uh, against Jesus. I, I mentioned at the onset of last week's study that the book of Daniel gives us great details of the end times and more than sufficient support to the fulfillment of the key prophecies in the book of Revelation. And wanting to understand the symbolism of Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, in particular, the identity of the great harlot, but also the identity of the ten horns on the beast, uh, looking at the book of Daniel will give us somewhat of a, a foundational platform. So if we're dealing with a revived Roman Empire, how do, I, how do we identify the key players? If we identify the Roman Empire or as a revived Roman Empire, how do we identify the key players? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read a long portion of this, so I want you to just stay up with me. We're going to, I'll comment along the way with certain of the verses. But I want you to notice what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 30 through 45. 16 verses. Daniel has been called by Nebuchadnezzar to come and interpret a dream that he had. None of his dream, uh, dreamer of dreams or interpreter of dreams even wanted to try to figure out what, what Nebuchadnezzar had uh, asked them to do in, in, in giving an interpretation of the dream because they knew Nebuchadnezzar that if they didn't interpret this dream properly that they'd have their heads chopped off. So everybody acted in fear. But it was told to the king that there was a Hebrew named Daniel who could interpret the dream for them. So I begin at verse 30 because this is Daniel speaking and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to, to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Daniel is doing exactly what Joseph did this past week as we were studying in, in the book of Genesis that he was saying to the Pharaoh, it's not in me. So again, he gives immediately the, the, the testimony that it is God that is giving him the gift to understand the wisdom of this dream and to be able to interpret it properly and rightly. So anyway, he goes on and he says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now some of us have probably seen a, a rendition of that, you see. That's, that's kind of the image of, uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream. The head of gold, the arms of silver, the, uh, the, the centerpiece of, uh, of bronze, and then, of course, the legs of, of iron. And then down further, iron and clay. And we go on, and it says in verse 34, You watch while a stone was cut out with, without hands. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this particular verse. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image <coughs> on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. This is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about Jesus. 
It says, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. Notice, it wasn't just the iron and clay of the feet. It was the whole image. It says, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. What's a mountain? What's the mountain? A kingdom. All right. Whoever gets, who said kingdom gets an A+. All right. But the rest of you, come on. What are you afraid to answer me? We've been talking about this. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, a kingdom requires a king. The king is the kingdom, in other words. This is the dream, he says to him. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. That was just the dream. Here's the interpretation. You, O king, are a king of kings. In other words, what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, you are a king of kings. In other words, you actually rule the known world. And he says, for the God of heaven, notice, the God of heaven has given you kingdom, power, strength, and glory. It wasn't you or your grandfather or anybody else. It was the God, the one true and living God of heaven. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now, what do you think is happening to Nebuchadnezzar when he's hearing this? Getting a little high in the I am mighty in the head here. <clears throat> he says, you are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, smaller and weaker, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. One after another. The idea is one crushes the other. The gold is crushed by the silver, the silver by the bronze, and the bronze by the iron. Whereas you saw the feet and toes. Now here's another part of that whole image. We only think of the four top parts, but sometimes we get confused about the, the bottom part, which is the iron and clay. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Oh, divided. What does that tell us about the Roman Empire? If it is indeed the Roman Empire that's being talked about. There was a western and an eastern side. That is very key to our understanding of this. Yet, it says, the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. You know, there's a lot of things you can draw uh, to, uh, from this particular statement here. The iron and the clay don't really mix. The Western thought and the Eastern thoughts don't mix. 
Western understanding of things and Eastern understanding of things are very different. Most people will say that Western uh, thought or Western, Western nations, as it were, are primarily Christian. Eastern are not. They don't mix. So there's a lot of conclusions you can draw from that particular statement, which will come into play a little bit more later. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. In other words, it's not going to be a democracy or an aristocracy or any kind of ocracy. It will be God and the Lord himself, the Messiah, in control. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The implication here in the language is, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms at the same time. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And it shall stand forever, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. In other words, man had no... uh, Man does not create God, does he? Uh, Man does not form God. I mean, man can think of anything to become a God, but the true and living God is not formed by man's ideas, hands, or anything else. So the stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold all together. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So what do we know about all of that? If we look at it as near (coughs) fulfillment, then that is really the first thing that gets uh, the the first thing that gets accomplished here. Nebuchadnezzar uh, actually passes on uh, his his reign, of course, to his grandson Belshazzar. uh, But then Belshazzar uh, loses the kingdom to uh, uh, Medo-Persia. and the Medo-Persians, and, and, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but in other words, every kingdom, eventually the near fulfillment of it does take place uh, from, the, uh, from the Babylonians. Now, uh, we'll see another list that we talked about earlier. Well, we're going to start at the Babylonians because of, of uh, the nature of the, revela- of the uh, Daniel uh, uh, prophecies. Okay, so where am I? The dream is certain, its interpretation, sure. Okay. So now the standard interpretation and the understanding of this passage, and the, which is the predominant position of many Bible prophecy teachers, is that the dream portrays the following four kingdoms. Now, maybe you've seen a chart like this somewhere, or maybe a Bible might have it. Uh, again, the gold is Babylon. They, they reign from 606 to 539 B.C. The silver then uh, would be the Medo-Persian Empire, which actually defeated the Babylonians and took over the kingdom uh, and made the Medo-Persian kingdom from 539 to 331 B.C. Uh, And then after that, uh, in 331, the bronze uh, part of the image was Greece. And the first idea that we get in our minds when we hear Greece is what? Zorba the Greek. Right? Where is Greek in our minds? West, right? Where is Greek in 
in light of the prophecies, east, part of Asia Minor, not Zorba, okay? Still east. In uh, in 30 B.C., there is uh, the loss of, of the Grecian Empire. Now, there are some people who have actually put that third one to be Greco-Roman instead of the um, uh, Greece and then Rome in the iron and clay area. And this, that's an interesting, it's an interesting theory because uh, when you think about the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus, what was the predominant language? Greek. As a matter of fact, our Bibles were translated from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. Part of it was Aramaic in the book of Daniel. But the New Testament was all written in Greek. Interesting, isn't it? So there's, a, there's an idea then, of course, the, that uh, the bronze part was, was actually a Greco-Roman uh, type of a, of a conglomerate and then after that came uh, the Islamic invasion or at least uh, the Islam uh, the, uh, the Turks which uh, we, talk, we talked about a couple of weeks ago and I'll, we'll get back to that in just a moment for our, for our purposes Rome was in fact the nation that was uh, the empire that was in control during the time of John's uh, receiving of the of the revelation, so Rome is still still valid here. Okay, so when compared to the vision in Daniel seven and its four bizarre beasts, because we're going to go to Daniel seven in just a moment, but when you compare Daniel chapter two, this this prophecy with Daniel chapter seven, where it gives us four very bizarre beasts, most of these scholars these uh, prophecy scholars agree that these four kingdoms correlate with the four kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So you see that there's the statue on the left, and then uh, in the red section is Daniel chapter 7. We don't want to look at Daniel 8. That's a totally different thing that we want to deal with later. But uh, right now, Daniel 7 has the beast, you know, the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast, uh, the fierce beast of, of Rome. Uh, if that is is in fact Rome. But there's the lion speaking of Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the bear, uh, Greece uh, having the the four heads. Now that's very important, the four heads of the leopard. (coughs) And we'll see that again. I mentioned before that Greece, uh, after Alexander died, and this is another reason why it could be very valid that there was a Greco-Roman type of a of a conglomerate of, 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 uh, of uh, leadership during that time. After Alexander the Great conquered and died very young, the, uh, the Grecian Empire was actually, uh, fell into a, a, a four-part uh, uh, leadership. So the whole of the, of, of the Grecian Empire was, was actually four kings. Now that plays very important, uh, a very important part in our study tonight as well. We'll get back to that. And then there's the fierce beast. The others we, we won't deal with tonight. But um, the difference is that the vision in chapter 7 of Daniel is primarily an end time passage. 
Whereas the Daniel chapter 2 passage has the dual meaning. In other words, there was a near fulfillment, but it also pointed to the far fulfillment that Daniel 7 makes very clear for us. So it signifies the kingdoms to follow after Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Now here's the real dilemma. The real dilemma is in identification uh, lying with the fourth kingdom in both cases. Is it Rome? Is it just Rome or is it just the Roman Empire? And so in both cases, something ties them together in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. What is it that ties them together? Well, if you look at Daniel 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. So that's what relates this to the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 2, is iron. Here is, mentioned, is the mention of iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, in verse 8 it says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. So, he saw ten horns, and then there was another horn. That makes it eleven. There's a ten horns, and then the, he said, I saw another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Who do we think that is? Antichrist. Pretty soon I want to just hear everybody say it all at one time, and I'll be scared to say what I'm asking for, right? So who do you think it was? (laughs) All right. Eyes of a man, mouth speaking pompous words. We will deal with some of that, of course, next week when we close out chapter 17. We go back to our text in chapter 17 and in verse 7. We compare the language of each of these prophecies. So in Revelation 17, 7 it says, But the... But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, we really haven't dealt with the seven-head, ten-horned beast. And I want to deal with that tonight. Out of the seven empires that have already been mentioned in previous studies, out of the seven empires... The seven corresponding to the seven heads and mountains. Now remember, we are told that there are seven mountains, not hills. Mountains, different word for hills than mountains, right? As a matter of fact, in English, you have either mountains or you have hills. Well, in the Greek too. So we're dealing with mountains. What, what are mountains signifying in, in, in the New Testament? Well, actually throughout the scriptures, what do mountains represent? Kingdoms. Wow, I like that. Kingdoms. And the heads represent kings. That's right. Because every king, every kingdom has to have a king. And every king represents a kingdom. So that's not Rome. You see, we, we, we settled that last time. It wasn't Rome. 
Rome had a Caesar. And it wasn't about having, you know, seven Caesars. Because then that was, that was going over time. We're talking about at one time when John was writing the Revelation or taking it down, there was one Caesar at that time. So out of the seven empires, the seven corresponding to the seven heads of mountains, we can then define the ten horns out of those seven. And let's not forget that we are talking about one beast upon which the mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth sits. She sits on one beast, seven heads, ten horns. The one, that one is key to understanding the whole. That one beast is key to understanding the whole. As we've already seen, Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Remember that verse? Were were you all here last week? I I was here. I remember. Verse 10. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. All right. We talked about those kings. What what empires were there? What did it begin with? The beast seven heads. Are you ready? If you missed it before, you got it now. The Egyptian empire. That was the first. What was the second? The Assyrian empire. What was the third? The Babylonian Empire. Now that's where Daniel starts because of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so keep that in mind. What came after the Babylonian Empire? The Medo-Persian Empire. Actually the Persian and then the Medo-Persian. Alright. Then came the Greek Empire. And again, I want to emphasize Eastern, not Western. Eastern, not Western. And then after that, the sixth was the Roman Empire, and that's where John says one is. That is the one kingdom that was going on at the time of John's writing, the book of Revelation. And then we said that the seventh is the Islamic Empire. And I gave you dates of when the eastern and the western parts of the Roman Empire were both uh, defeated by the Turkish caliphate. And by that time, you see, Islam had already come into, a, into being in the 7th century A.D. They became quite, uh, quite an empire that uh, was moving from the east to the west. Has that Move slowed down at all? It has and has it. Now, how then do we get ten horns out of these seven empires? How do we get ten horns out of seven empires? All right, here we go. Simply one horn, Egypt, was plucked by the Assyrians. 
Remember back the verse before this, we talked about the horns that were plucked out. So one horn, Egypt, was plucked out by the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrian horn, the second horn, was plucked out by the Babylonian Empire. And then the Babylonian horn, the third horn, was plucked out by the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Persian horn, which was the fourth horn, was plucked out by the Grecian Empire. Now here's where you have to pay attention. The Grecian horns. What did we say about after Alexander? How many kings ruled in the Grecian Empire after Alexander? They split it up into four sections. One, two, three, four. Now you have eight after the Romans plucked out the four nation, the, the, the four leaderships of the of the Grecian Empire. That's eight. Okay, so that far, so far, that's eight horns, and then the Roman horn was plucked by the Islamic Caliphate. That's nine. And the Islamic Caliphate was plucked when the Turkish Ottoman Empire and the Caliphate was defeated by the West, particularly Britain, as it were, Great Britain, in 1924. Once again, I have to tell you that the Romans did not defeat the Romans. It is not a revived Roman Empire that defeated the Romans. Because the seventh, we are told, is also the eighth. The seventh is also the eighth and is of the seventh. I mentioned that last time. Uh, Look at verse 11 of Revelation 17. The beast that was and is not, that's speaking, folks, of that caliphate, that Turkish or Ottoman leadership that was and then was not, because it ended. The Islamic Empire at that point in 1924 ended. So this is prophecy having been fulfilled. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition or destruction. It is of the seven. And I told you last week, that phrase of the seven is significant. It is not one of the seven. Some of you might have the New American Translation. If you look at the word one, it's not really in the text because it's italicized. Italics in the Bible tell us that that has been added to give understanding, as it were. But I can tell you this, it's not there in the text. It is of the seven. And the reason I bring that up, because in simple terms, the seventh kingdom, the Islamic kingdom, is also the eighth, which is still to come, and is of the seven, because it rises theologically, it rises politically, and it rises geographically, from the seven previous kingdoms, which were not from the west, but from the east. All of them. Do you see that now? So remember then the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The fourth kingdom 
had the two legs and feet. The Roman Empire. If it is indeed the Roman Empire, it included not only a western leg, but an eastern leg. All the kingdoms ruled the vast majority of the known world, and each included the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Every one of them. And the only reason the Roman Empire did it was because they had done extensive conquest of the East. And of course we know from the Gospels and from the book of Acts and from the writings of the Apostles that Rome was, at least the Empire at that time, was very much a part of the oppression upon the Jews and upon the early Christians. By the way, I forgot to mention that back in Daniel 7, verse 8, I I did mention a little bit, but, but we're told of that other horn, that little one, that little horn. As it is put, that 11th horn should represent the eighth Antichrist empire the empire of Antichrist and by the way it is going to be plucked by Jesus himself it is going to be plucked by Jesus himself and, and this is the interesting thing about the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream by Daniel as, as to what happens to the image go back for just a moment to verses 44 and 45 of chapter 2 Because it says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold... The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. The implication is, the implication is that the four empires described will be broken at the same time. Each of these kingdoms, by the way, was oppressive towards the children and the land of Israel. And eventually through that Roman Empire in the eastern portion of it would also be oppressive to the church. The idea here is that the final empire, the final empire will encompass the previous three. In in effect, it encompasses all that it eats up. If one has eaten up one that has eaten up another that has eaten up another what has been eaten up is everything that all the others had in culture in society in 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 religion and 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 in any other kind of philosophical uh thought everything is eaten up when the babylonians were were uh, taken by uh, the um the medo persians 
as much as they wanted to change the Medo-Persian or the Babylonians into Medo-Persians, the Babylonians kept their culture, kept their ways of doing things. When the Babylonians attacked and, and, and destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem and they took all of the, the, uh, the Israelites uh, and the Judeans out of, 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 uh, of uh, Judea and took them to uh, captivity in Babylon, they did their best to change their ways. But did the people really change? They kept their God. They kept their Bible. They, they kept the Scriptures. And they were saddened because they realized that they should have, they should never have rejected God or they never should have disobeyed God the way that they did for the Lord to say, look, if you don't return to me, I'm going to send you into captivity. They did it with the Assyrians in the northern part of Israel. They did it with the Babylonians in the southern part of Israel. And all of them went with their understanding of what they had done because they had the Scriptures. And even though, and you think about it with Daniel and the three Hebrew children, you know, uh, uh, the, the three that are uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and then Daniel also had, by the way, Daniel also had a, a Babylonian name too. You could change their names, but you can't change who they are. Especially if they, had, had, in, in any way, shape, or form, tried to keep their faith. You might change somewhat of the, of the superficial parts of people, but you cannot change who they are and who God made them. So, all of these empires, the Babylonianism is very important. Why? Because we studied it at the very beginning of chapter 17. This was coming right out of Babel, which was the very birthplace of false religion. The very birthplace of demonic religions. Of any religion outside of the true faith that God would want people to have in Him. Everything has been counter from then. Everything. But even that, the countering started back in the garden. Who was counter to what God had said? The serpent. What did the serpent do? He injected that doubt and, 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 and the uh, uh, confusion into, into the woman and the man who disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And ever since then, there has been counter, countering everything God says. And that's why we have the word counterfeit. There's a counterfeit for all of the things that God has made to be good. After man sinned, everything was no longer good except God. And it is at that moment that God became what we needed. He in His perfection, in His goodness, provided for us the way out. To Satan, he said, I'm going to send against you the seed of the woman. That's Messiah. 
And ever since then, Satan began to counterfeit everything that God did for good. He counted it with something that was evil. Practically everything. And that's what we're facing today in this world. So consider, if you will, Daniel chapter 7, because I, I wanted you to see a few things from Daniel 7 to tie it in with Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 7:23, it says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Now you just stop and think. Stop and think. I know that we can say that uh, those who have pompous words can be any number of atheistic type of people. But in the long run, the greatest hatred of the true and living God comes from those who have a counter-God to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. I want you to stop and think for just a moment. Who's trying to change times and laws today in this world? Let me give you a little hint. Sharia. Sharia. Sharia law is Islamic law. They are trying to change the laws wherever they go, the laws of any place that take them in, as we have done in the United States, as most of Europe has done. They kind of assimilate a little bit. They come here because of the freedom of religion. They're given the same benefits that we have constitutionally until they grow to where they become a, a very strong and solid political block. Because I, if you remember a long time ago when we were first starting to talk about these things, I mentioned that Islam is not just a religion. It is a political entity. It is actually more political than it is religious in many ways. That's what chapter 18 is about. We'll talk about it when we get there. But they want to change the times and the law. And they claim that they will only listen to Sharia law. In England today, there are British members of, common, of, of the House of Commons and members of, of the Parliament that want to give them the opportunity to live only by Sharia law, but, they, but, but the Islamics want the whole nation to be under Sharia law. That's how strong they are in trying to get that to be changed in places. When whole nations become Islamic, then it's Sharia law. 
When they went further east out into Indonesia, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing, and much of Indonesia today is, is Islamic, not, uh, not as we would consider maybe Buddhist or whatever. I mean, the, the percentages are very small. It's primarily Islamic. When you think of the nations in, southern, in the southern area of, of what is called the uh, Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS, that is the, the old Russia, the old uh, Soviet Union, most of the southern states that are surrounding uh, Turkey uh, and uh, Afghanistan and, or, or you know, Turkmenistan and, and uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, all of those are Islamic nations. And, and you know, what's to say about uh, Afghanistan and, and, and the kind of laws that the Taliban have tried to enforce in that nation? Uh, well, anyway. They intend to, time, uh, to change times of law. That, uh, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That's the short part of that, you know, that uh, one hour of, 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 uh, of, of rule. In other words, it's a short time, but it's 42 months still. Nonetheless, that's a, you know, it's a short time in, in, in God's time perspective, but for some people it's an eternity. But the court shall be seated. Now here's, here's where God says, okay, here's my court now. The court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion, speaking of the Antichrist, to consume and destroy it forever. <clears throat> and then the kingdom and dominion and the, king, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So that brings us back to our text then in verses 12 through 14. See what we're doing with time here. Okay, I think we can make it. We go back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. It says, Then ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. So that's that short 42-month period. Uh, These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And these will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. But we're going to see more details of this conflict in Revelation chapter 19. But suffice it to say that in the end, the Lamb of God wins. In the end, the Lamb of God wins and those who belong to him will win too. And so it's really important that even if you don't understand just about everything that we've talked about tonight, understand this one thing. If you are in Christ you win. If you are with Christ, you win. If you are of Christ, you win. No matter what may happen to us, we win because of Jesus. And it brings us to this last passage that I want to share with you tonight before we close. Because I like to leave you with a little encouragement and I can see that most of you need encouragement tonight. After all of that, So I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I understand it's not easy to understand fully. But that's okay because this is prophecy. This is prophetic language. It takes us a little time to have to sift through a lot of stuff. The important thing is that you realize that God wants us to know this. God wants us to 
understand it as best as we can. Because there's one factor that we can never forget, and that is that Jesus said, I am coming again. And that in itself ties all of what we've studied tonight and all that we've studied in the last two and a half years, it ties it all to us. Jesus said, I want you to be ready because I can come at any moment. He says, the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Paul says that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And so how does that happen? You have to be ready. You have to be vigilant. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, like some of you might be tonight after that, this whole last hour, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. In other words, don't don't be shaken as if it already came and passed and you missed it. No, you haven't missed it yet, is what Paul is saying. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The the apostasia, the falling away, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the son of lostness, the Antichrist, who opposes, notice this, who opposes and, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, again, counterfeit to Christ, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments, about 200 years before uh, Jesus was born into this earth. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, I think that this is very important for you to remember. Paul told this church, I told you this. I told you this so that you'll learn and keep learning. And if you don't understand, keep learning until you do. But do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Right now, the same restrainer is at work, the Holy Spirit. When the time comes, the church is taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit, uh, which is the restrainer, is going to allow all those things that we have seen in Revelation happen because the end is what is important to the Lord here. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, in other words, today, as well as in Paul's time, but even more today, Only he who now restrains will do so, that's the Holy Spirit, until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, which is what we've seen in Daniel and what we've seen in the book of Revelation when they want to attack the lamb, but the lamb is going to beat them. And that's it. That's where we're going to stop. Right there. Because that's what I want you to be encouraged by. The Lord wins and all who are with Him. Amen? Okay. So don't get too upset if you didn't quite get just about everything. All right? But we have to, you know, we've, we've been layering these teachings over the last few weeks 
because it, it is a difficult concept to get when, when you're being told one thing and to be looking in one direction when in fact everything else is taking place in another direction. So it's, it's okay for us to catch up. God has given us time to catch up with where things are happening. And then, you know, after, I tell you what, after 9-11, uh, 2001, uh, we had to take really seriously, you know, in a greater sense, the Islamic threat and what it was going to, what it was actually saying. And, and this is what is getting us to be more focused on these things happening in a little bit of a different way than what we had seen before. So, okay, we, uh, we'll close out uh, chapter 17 next week. Praise the Lord. Well, at least we hope so. And um, uh, when we get to chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 18, uh, already with these things in mind, chapter 18 will not take as long. And then chapter 19, of course, uh, as I mentioned, we are going to look at the, you know, that really that final battle. And, of course, we see the victorious one who is Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray.